He is risen. Amen. That is good news, isn't it? So good to be here with you this morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. My name is Monty. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And uh, man, what a sweet gift it is for all of us to be able to gather together around the incredible news, the incredible hope that we have in Christ as our risen Savior. So I want to welcome you to our worship gathering. And uh, I realize there are people that are joining us maybe for the first time ever, whether that's online or in person. Uh, If you are a guest with us, we are so glad that you're here. We hope that you feel welcome. And uh, I want to give you a little bit of encouragement just to how to begin to uh, connect. So if you're online, again, we would love to see you in person at some point. Uh, But until then, if you'll go to our website, click on I'm New, uh, there's a lot of great information just to introduce our church to you. And uh, and then there's a little info form. If you'll fill that out, we'll get back with you this week, and uh, we'll just start talking with each other and getting to know each other. So thanks for joining us today. If you're a guest with us in person here this morning, again, we hope you feel welcome. Uh, We we don't have the lobby kind of decked out like it is all the time like that, but... Man, it's fun this morning. And by the way, thanks to, uh, there were a lot of folks that helped kind of transform that place into a beautiful spot to connect. So let's take advantage of that. It's a a beautiful, beautiful space. But if you're a guest, what we want to ask you to do is drop by Starting Point. It's out in the lobby. Uh, We've got a gift for you there. And uh, also they can just begin answering some questions you might have about our church. That's a great way to connect. So Glad you're here. Glad that you guys can uh, enjoy that. We look forward to getting to know you. Um, I want to start in a a place that may seem a little bit strange to you. Like we just sang these beautiful words and it's blue skies and lots of pastel colors in the lobby. And I love all of that. So please know that. I'm going to start in a place, though, that may feel a little bit odd to you. And just hang with me. We'll get there by the end. So here's where I want to start. And I've been thinking about this, and I I think there's a lot of reasons that have just kind of put me in the place that I'm in, and maybe you can relate. But here's what I'm wondering. Uh, I'm wondering if we're not tempted to sanitize Easter. Right? We dress up, we smile, it's beautiful, we take pictures, we, we do all of that stuff, and it's just easy to forget what this moment in history was all about. We, we did talk about it a little bit on Friday. I don't know if you've been watching the Easter series, those eyewitness testimonies on Right Now Media throughout the week. So that's all been helpful, but I just think it's tempting to go through the motions or the mechanics of Holy Week and forget what was really going on. Like, I mean, let's think about Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. That, that may make you a little uncomfortable, and I get it. You know, we, we watched that, and there was this strange blend of sort of fascination and repulsion, kind of all at the same time, right? Maybe it's... Uh, Similar to your experience with The Chosen. I don't know how many of you are for that or against that, watching it, not watching it, or whatever. But are we uncomfortable with the reality of it? There's so many details that are are portrayed there that aren't given to us in the scriptures. But we watch it and we kind of go, yep, 
I think it could have been like that. And it, it makes it earthy. It makes it human. It makes it messy. And, and that's honestly how I'm coming in to Easter this year. Life is messy, isn't it? I, let's just start generally, okay? And I think this is a place we can all identify with. Think about our culture. Just absolute chaos in so many ways. Political hostility. Natural calamities. In the news, it seems like every week. Economic volatility. And moral decay. That is in our face every single day, isn't it? But let's get a little more specific. Relational pain. Any arguments in the car on the way to church this morning? Any tension between spouses or with kids or relatives or neighbors? Health concerns. I know right now there are people who are waiting on a report back. Testing has been done, and who knows? Some are just walking through a painful diagnosis and treatment. That's a reality today. Financial strain. Lost job, looking for a job, wondering if you're going to have a job, wondering if you're going to be able to make ends meet. Broken air conditioner, I mean, easy to get there, isn't it? Easy to feel the pressure, the strain of that. Anybody struggling with sin? Anybody have a a setback or a moral failure maybe this last week? See, I... Easter doesn't make all that just go away. It's messy. And the fact is, all of us brought that mess in here with us. And there's no better place to bring it. But it's still a mess. Let me get really personal. Um, I lead this church in, uh, as part of a team of elders and of staff, and I love it, and it's the hardest thing on earth for me. It's a mess, because we live in a broken, sin-wrecked world, and we're trying to, I loved what Kevin said about in uh, protest to the things of darkness. Pastoral care, I've had a lot of conversations over the last few weeks for a lot of different reasons, and it is so weighty. Just hard stuff that people are walking through. God's called me to to enter into that, to sit with my friends and my brothers and my sisters and face the mess together, and that's hard. I'm not asking for pity, I'm just being honest. I'm sure that we all have heard of the incredible, horrific 
painful loss that the Bakers and the Herndons have experienced in just the last couple of weeks. And then lastly, um, I just got news last week that my sweet daughter has had her third miscarriage. It's just a mess. You know, I'm her dad, and I want so much for her. And she's okay. They're walking through it. But it's just hard. Life is messy, isn't it? So I don't want us to pretend as if we didn't bring the mess in here with us. We're going to celebrate Easter. But we're going to do it in reality. You could say that uh, this mess has been with us since the day that Adam and Eve just chose to go their own way. They trusted in their own instincts. They trusted in their own perception of what was going on around them. They trusted in the deceptive promise that they could have godlike power in the face of what I'm sure the world around them was big, maybe even threatening at some level. And they thought they could have power to deal with all of that. And so they took the fruit. They trusted in themselves instead of trusting in the simple words and heart of the one who made them, who placed them there to begin with. Now, while the first couple made the original mess, we're all a part of it, aren't we? All of humanity has not only been affected by the mess, but they've contributed to it. And that applies to us as well. One of the best descriptions I've found of how we feel about the mess is the word vulnerable. Vulnerable. Here's a definition for you. Capable of being wounded or exposed, open to attack or damage, assailable. Somebody can break in to your life. It's universal. I don't know a single person who is invincible. Do you? I don't know anyone who is impervious to the difficulties, the pain and the heartache of living in a broken, sin-wrecked world. That person does not exist. I suspect hardly anyone here likes to think about vulnerability. We do our best to block it out and live as if we're untouchable until we're not. And then we got to face it. We got to walk through it. Here's the truth. What we do in the midst of the mess is monumental. It sets our course each and every day. Three ways that we naturally respond. You can remember this easy. Frozen, fight, and flight. 
That's just how we instinctively respond to the threat of the mess. Some of us are frozen. We are incapacitated. We're just overcome by it all and unable to move. That's a real thing for some of us. For others of us, we reach down deep. We take hold with all the grit we've got and we fight and we just keep fighting anything and everything around us. And then lastly, some of us are given to flight. But here's what that looks like. It looks like grasping in every direction for anything that will numb the pain. Pick your poison. It's worldly attempts to mask the symptoms of our frailty. Do do you get that? Do you feel that? Saw a podcast, or it was a TED Talk It's years old now from 2010. Brene Brown, not recommending her, but she had some really great insight. She's a professor and an author, and she said this just about numbing, that you can't selectively numb parts of your life, part of the pain, and not end up numbing everything. So wherever it is we might go to numb the difficulties of the mess, we lose far more than just that. Let's think for just a minute about some of the people that were right around Jesus in the mess that was surrounding Holy Week. Again, we're not sanitizing this morning, right? We're trying to get right into the the reality of it all. So in their vulnerability... A lot of the people around Jesus responded in a lot of different ways. The the Pharisees, they lashed out in aggression. And that was longstanding, but it, it got to the pinnacle that week. The disciples ran out in panic. Judas sold out in betrayal. Peter hid out in denial. Pilate, the most powerful player other than Jesus in the entire narrative, he checked out in resignation. And then finally, a a person of interest for us today, Paul, his response to the mess was to hunt down believers in persecution. That was how he dealt with the threat of the mess. And all of these are flesh-based attempts to manage the mess, to make it feel as if it isn't what it is, as threatening as it might be. But all those attempts were short-lived. They didn't really have any effect in dealing with vulnerability. Every one of those people were just as vulnerable after as they were before. And that's the way the power of the flesh Works. In fact, it, it really just has an appearance and nothing more. Listen to how Paul describes it all to his disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. See if we can relate to this today. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. See, there is great power in godliness, but there is no power anywhere else. That's the place. Thankfully, Jesus entered into the mess in the flesh. Isn't that good news? John 1.14, and the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John records these words of Christ in John 10.10. He said, I came that they, you, me, we, he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Philippians 2, 7 and 8, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Good Friday. And then Hebrews 4.15, as a result... We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus entered the mess in the flesh, but not only that, he overcame the mess Here's Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says this is of first importance. We call this the linchpin of Christianity. Later, he's going to say, if this isn't true, then this is a joke. We are absolute, utter fools to be pitied more than anyone else on earth because we have given ourselves to a lie. But Paul says it is true. Jesus died. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. Now, it's a fair question I would encourage you to ask, but how do we know it's true? 
That's fair. We don't have to be afraid of that question. Let me offer a couple of thoughts in response to that. First of all, we have this biblical record. And let me just say something about this biblical record, because usually it gets dismissed as a religious text. And so somehow, because it's religious, it doesn't count. Well, here's what I'll tell you about this religious text. We have more ancient manuscripts of this than any other book in history. There's not even a close second. So that means that we're able to go back and people who say, yeah, there's contradictions everywhere and it's, all, it's been changed and rewritten. No, it hasn't. And we can prove it. Not only that, no other book in history has had more scrutiny, more analysis given to it than this book. And it has not been found wanting. It is an accurate reflection of ancient history. Secondly, there were massive eyewitness testimonies, all of which could have been refuted if they were false. I, just, I mean, think about it. If Jesus' body was hidden somewhere, don't you think that somebody would have gone and gotten it, brought it out and said, see, it's all a lie? That never happened. There are extra biblical records of the life and crucifixion of Jesus. These are not people that are sympathetic to Christianity. Some of them are even opposed, and yet they speak of a real historical person named Jesus who lived, died, and was buried and rose again. Now, they might not testify to the resurrection, but you can't say that he's some fictional, mythical character that somebody made up somewhere. Lastly, the martyrdom of those who claim to see the risen Christ. And you've got to answer the question. Would all of them die for a lie? I mean, they knew what happened or didn't happen. And every one of them, those eyewitnesses, they died proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead and they saw him. You got to do something with that. This is a worthy question. How do we know it's true? But there are great answers. Uh, when you came in this morning, you got this postcard. And on the blue side, there's a QR code. If you'll click on that, it will take you to a landing page that basically is full of resources, practical biblical equipping around these hard questions. There's books there, there's videos there. Um, some of them are more introductory maybe to Christianity. Some of them go beyond the basics. It's, there, I think there's something there for everybody, and I would encourage you to explore, to question, and to seek. There are great answers to all of your questions. Here's what I am suggesting to us today. God's power is our only hope, our only hope of making it through the mess. We're living in this uh, strange in-between time. Jesus rose again. He ascended to heaven, and here we are, 2,000 years of life in the mess, and we're waiting for him to come back. 
And we need his power to make it. Paul was confronted with the reality of this statement um, in his journey of faith. 2 Corinthians 12, let me read this to you. It's our primary text for today. He had seen some visions that are almost indescribable. And then this is what comes next. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, we don't know what the thorn is. We know that Satan had some kind of hand in it. But we know it must have been incredibly difficult, painful, distracting. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Have you ever done that? Lord, please. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Notice that the power of Christ isn't gained by exercising strength. It is activated in our lives by our weakness, by our vulnerability, that that very thing that we just try to set aside, put in the back closet and hope it doesn't come out. Weakness can be a curse we dismiss or a gift we embrace from a place of faith. That's true every day. The weaker we perceive ourselves to be, and I know this is so counterintuitive, the more powerless we feel in and of ourselves, the more we embrace our real vulnerability, the more fit we are to experience the sufficiency of Christ. He moves into that place of weakness and vulnerability, and he fills us. Said another way, the more we give up the idea that we are self-sufficient, even though everything around us, our culture, our world, our media, all that stuff tells us, you're enough. The more we give up that idea, the more room there is for us to truly experience the sufficiency of Christ. And that's just what we need to navigate the shadow lands of this world. Paul asked multiple times for his thorn to be removed. And the Lord doesn't criticize him for that, but neither does he fulfill it. He reshapes Paul's understanding of what weakness offered him. And that was an opportunity to experience the sufficiency of God's grace in the form of power, resurrection power, in the face of his mess.
Paul needed to grow just like we need to grow. We say around here, life change is a way of life. And so it's always encouraging for me to see growth in a guy like Paul. So he wrote 2 Corinthians, and then six years later, he penned a letter to the church in Philippi. Listen to what he said to that church six years later. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I wonder if he gave the thorn a second thought at this point in his life. I wonder if he had so began to understand the gift that it was. Because that thorn led him away from himself and into the sufficiency of Christ. We will appreciate and celebrate the resurrection only to the degree that we understand our brokenness and our need for a power outside of ourselves, not within. Now, we might ask, power for what? How are we supposed to put that power to use? And I would say generally, kind of as an umbrella statement... It is power to have and to live the abundant life that Jesus himself said he came to give us. So the offer is abundant life and the power to live it, to have it, to walk in it. Let's get more specific. This power is power to stand firm in truth. By the way, these are all commands. These are These are expectations that the risen Christ would have for anyone who places their faith in him. He's just thinking, if I've given you life, and that life is embedded with the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, this is what he expects to see. Not in a performance way, in a a reactionary kind of way, a a result kind of way. Power to stand firm in the truth. Power to love friends and enemies alike. Power to consider others more important than ourself. Power to resist temptation. Power to serve with humility. Power to endure suffering, power to proclaim the gospel everywhere we go. 
I don't know where I heard this. Um, I thought maybe this should have been a little family motto or something, but I heard it somewhere. We do hard things. Christians, this isn't an easy path. Christians do hard things, but they don't do it in their own power. They do it in the power of Christ. And to the degree that you and I truly lean into him and fully depend upon him, these things become a reality, not because we're some superstar, but because we have finally just given in to the Lord and let him have his way. Let me talk what talk about what that looks like. How do we access the power of the resurrection? Very practically speaking, three things. First of all, we must be born again. There is nothing in you or me apart from Christ that can do any of this. Jesus actually said, apart from me, you can do... I I didn't quite hear you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. nothing. Peter writes, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where life is found, and we must find it by being born again. Here's what that means. Death, burial, resurrection, spiritually speaking. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to be born again. And if you're here today and you've never come to that place where you you finally came to the end of yourself and said, I need a Savior, I need someone to do for me what I can't do for myself, that's the invitation for you today. There is a risen Savior, and he would love nothing more than to save you for himself. He loves you. He laid down his life for you. And you gain that relationship by turning from your own way to him, asking him to forgive you, to restore you, to bring you into relationship with him. And his answer is always yes. We must be born again. Secondly, we must take hold of the life we have been given. And that phrase, take hold, you need to think of like seizing out of desperation. Like you're going off the cliff and you're grabbing for anything that will give you life. Take hold of the life that you have been given. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 6 describing that. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the Christian life isn't believe once, one and done, just do whatever you want to until God takes you to heaven. That's not the way it works. 
the same way you come to Christ, death, burial, resurrection, that's life every day thereafter. He came that we might walk in newness of life, not the same old way we used to walk. So we have to be born again, and we must take hold of the life we have been given by grace through faith. And then lastly, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. So many distractions. So many threats in the mess. He says, I want you to lock in on me. Nothing else. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let us, all those who have been born again, all those who are taking hold of eternal life, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Just know this, it delighted the heart of God. I know this is hard to put together. It delighted the heart of God to lay down his life in the brutality of the cross so that you might be saved, so that I might be saved, so that we might have life eternal. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me pray. Father God, this life is a mess. But Lord, you are good. You have entered into it. You have overcome it. And you show us the way through it. Thank you. Thank you for loving us so perfectly, so sufficiently, so lavishly. Lord, we praise you. You are worthy of our praise. We praise you in Jesus' name.